All right, everybody, good morning. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. We are um, in the midst of a series, and I'm glad, if this is your first time to rent it, welcome. I'm just glad you're here. We, um, we're a bizarre church uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, we know that we have a lot of work to do. We know that we are not yet where God wants us to be, but every day we listen to his truth, we surrender more, and he begins to change us and mold us. And so every week we just come back to say thanks, uh, to learn more, to surrender more, and allow him to change us more. Now recently I went over to Europe uh, to St. Andrews, uh, the golf course, which, I mean, let's just talk, I mean, wow. Anyway, on the way there I found out that a famous couple went to St. Andrews University. The problem was I didn't really know who the couple was. Um, which would have been a horror to most of the people over in England. Because um, I don't, this may shock you, but I don't really keep up with a lot of, I keep up with world events, but not like, I don't know how to describe it, but maybe it's your thing. Maybe this would help you. April 29th, 2011. April 29th, 2011. Anybody? Billions of people watched the royal wedding of Prince William and Kate. Middleton, 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 yes. Were you one of them? April 29th. It was the wedding of the new millennium. The cost of the wedding was estimated to be $34 million. Compared to the average wedding, which is also ridiculous, $27,000. Here are a few of the prices. The royal wedding cake, $80,000. American average, five forty. dollars Kate Middleton's wedding gown, 434000 American average, 1099 The royal wedding flowers, $800,000. Average U.S. price, 2000 The ring, $136,000, which was originally Prince Diana's and therefore didn't cost anything. Prince Charles purchased it in 1981 for $45,000, and it was estimated at the time of the wedding to be $136,000. Other costs that figured into the $34 million included the church service, music, food, uh, security, decorations. Um, but their wedding actually cost a lot less than Prince Charles and Princess Diana, who were in the neighborhood of $48 million dollars and in today's dollars would be well over a hundred million. Now, can you imagine being invited to that wedding? Can you imagine having a seat of honor at that wedding? Like the wedding couldn't start if you didn't show up. Imagine that, a wedding that big. Where's Frank? He's not here yet. What if it was your wedding? Have you ever thought about what Kate must have gone through? I mean, can you imagine knowing that that day is on your calendar, all the planning, all the preparation, everything happening, if you were Kate? That'd be crazy, wouldn't it? As dazzling and detailed as William and Kate's wedding was, it pales in comparison to a heavenly wedding that's on God's prophetic calendar. The marriage of the Lamb, a day set for you and me, a day where we actually are the bride. We've been talking about the rapture of the church. 
the stealing away of God's bride and the timing of that event as it relates to seven years of tribulation. Last week, I covered the first six reasons why I believe we're going to have a pre-trib rapture. Now, let me stop for a minute and just say something. You don't have to agree with me. Believe what you want. I, I mean, I've had people, I can't go there because you're a pre-trib. Okay, I, I don't know what that means. None of us have the exact answer. I'm sharing with you why I believe, based on Scripture, this is the correct answer. Now, you can disagree. That's totally cool. It's okay. Read the scriptures for yourself, pray to the Holy Spirit, figure out what you think. I'm sharing with you why I believe that's the case. And today we're on number seven, seventh reason. Seven reasons for a pre-trib rapture. So today we're going to turn our attention to weddings. Now Jewish weddings occurred in two distinct events. An intimate small wedding service where the marriage actually happens. And then seven days later, the bride and groom return and a call goes out and the whole town comes and celebrates the reception. That's how they do their weddings. And it's important when we read scripture to remember these words were written first to a first century audience. They were written in the context of Jewish traditions to be read by Jewish people with an understanding of Jewish life and culture. When Jesus spoke of a wedding, they would reference not Kate's wedding, the weddings at their time. In order to understand what Jesus speaks about, we have to look at what the words meant first and foremost to that first century audience. For example, if you had a flat today and you were in the US, you need a tire wrench and somebody to help you change your tire. If you're in London, you have an apartment. If you don't understand which flat you're talking about, you don't understand the context of what, what, this, what we're talking about. So we need to understand Jewish weddings. In the first century, the most celebrated events of the year were the Feast of the Lord, which we've covered, and anybody's wedding. Weddings were huge. Weddings carried all kinds of significance. The entire process of the wedding took over a year. The ceremony itself was relatively short, followed by a week where the bride and groom would go away, the close family would stay and party for a week, and then everybody would come back on day seven. The whole town would shut down, and the, it was a great celebration. The Bible mentions weddings at least 20 times. Let's look a little closer at first century Jewish weddings. First of all, all weddings were arranged, sort of. I used to think I didn't understand this, okay, but the kids decided who they wanted to marry. They just got the parents to agree to it, okay? That's basically how it worked, okay? And uh, the groom would usually identify his bride and go to her father for approval. Then the bride and her family would agree. Both sides had to agree. The acceptance of the proposal. There would be no wedding if the bride said no. Let me repeat that. There would be no wedding if the bride said no. The bride is offered a cup of red wine. The young man would pour a cup of wine for his prospective bride. If she drank from the cup, she just created an unbreakable covenant. 
She has accepted the proposal. She has total autonomy to either drink the cup or not drink the cup. She just has to explain it to the fathers that arranged it all. The father of the groom was the one who accepted the bride and often demanded some form of payment for her dowry. Once the father of the groom gave his approval, the young woman accepted the offer of the relationship and the dowry would be paid. Couples were considered betrothed. It was a legal commitment that carried the same weight as being married. Once you accepted the cup and drank from it, you created a covenant that can't be broken. Breaking it was considered adultery. And that's the issue that faced Mary. The punishment of that was death. The contract was sealed and would be operational as soon as the father of the groom determined that it's time. The young man had to go to his father's house and prepare a room for his bride. In their culture, every time you added a, an in-law, you added a room. Everybody lived in the same house, the father's house. The bride would leave her mom and dad, move to the father's house where she would live the rest of her life with her husband, and she would be considered adopted by that father. Does that make sense? Only the father of the groom could determine when it was time to go get the bride. The room had to be ready. The, the young man had to be prepared to care for his wife, had to be prepared for everything. So the young man would go away to prepare a room, and when the father said it was okay, he would come back and get his bride. How did he prepare? Well, he had to build the room. Usually it took about a year. It would have taken three years, but men motivated to be with their woman can do it in about a year. But it wasn't done until the father said, it's okay, go get her. They had to make sure the new couple had a place to live because they would stay in that home for the rest of their lives. Once the room was built, the father gave his approval. The groom was instructed by the father to go quickly and get his bride. The groom and his wedding party would march towards the town go through the town, playing cymbals, singing and dancing. The groom didn't wait for daybreak. It was time. They usually went at night. The bride had been anticipating his arrival for some time. She wasn't clueless. She knew he was going to come. He promised. He's in the covenant too. There was a great expectation as to the day that the groom would surprise his bride. She didn't know exactly when, but she could walk by the house and go, it's got to be pretty soon. He's just got to put some shingles up on that roof. I mean, you never know, but she knew it was going to happen. These towns are small, okay? They know what's being built. They know what's happening. There's no way the bride, oh, I had no clue it was now. When the groom collected his bride and her party, the entire town joined them and paraded them back to the father's house for the ceremony. Once the bride arrived at the father's home, she was given a special preparation room and told to prepare herself for her wedding day, which was the next day. She goes through a ritual cleansing similar to baptism or the process that priests went through on their way to the temple. She's dressed in white to represent her purity. Most Jewish women never wore white. 
except on their wedding day. The wedding ceremony occurred on the first day. Attendance at the wedding service was just for a very small number of people, usually the immediate intimate family. A wedding would occur, they would be married, the marriage would be consummated that night, proof of purity was demonstrated by blood on the sheets and they were presented to the father of the bride. He kept those in case there was ever any suggestion that his daughter wasn't pure. Once the marriage was consummated, the closest family continued to celebrate for seven days. So they're celebrating, it's a week long thing. If your daughter gets married, you're partying for a week. And you're hosting a party for a week for the immediate family only. The bride and groom go away for seven days, what we now call a honeymoon. They disappeared for a week uh, and they would live in the room that he prepared. Wasn't like they went to some great whatever, they just went to this room. And, and so for a week, they're alone. At the end of seven days, the couple would emerge. And all the invited guests from the entire town would be invited to a marriage supper, a reception. At that time, the new couple lived in the father's house and the bride is adopted into his family. What that means is if something happens to the husband, the daughter's not left on her own. Okay, her in-laws are responsible for caring for her for the rest of her life. Something to think about. Okay, and in scripture, Jesus is constantly referring to the bridegroom and believers are referred to as his bride. It is the celebration and imagery of weddings that God uses to show us our relationship with him. Let's look at some of the parallels that I hope are obvious by now. The relationship is arranged by the father on behalf of the son. The bride must agree to surrender to the relationship. A price has to be paid to the father and then the relationship is sealed and certain. Though the wedding itself is some time off, maybe over a year, the relationship is established, sealed, and guaranteed. It cannot be broken other than by death. The dowry is the price paid, the promise that binds the covenant. The dowry is paid in advance for the promise of the covenant later. A price has already been paid for that relationship based on the promise that it would be consummated in the future. Just as ancient Jewish grooms paid a purchase price to establish the marriage covenant, Jesus paid a purchase price for his bride, the church. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We were bought with a price. Next, the groom has to get ready for his bride. He begins by going to her and promising that he would return to her as soon as he could. John 14, 1, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it was not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. 
The reference to the father's house preparing a room was clearly representing marriage betrothal. They are legally bound. She's betrothed to her husband, legally bound to remain pure. From the time the commitment is made until the marriage is consummated, she's to make sure that she maintains her commitment to the groom and guards her purity. He does so as well. She's betrothed to her husband, and we are living right now in that time. We've been betrothed to Jesus. Our relationship has been sealed by the Father. The price has been paid. The promise is in the future. We're given the Holy Spirit as a seal and a promise until the day that Jesus returns to us when our room is ready. We are eagerly waiting for the return of Jesus. We're not clueless. We can see that it's soon. We're in the process of trying to become more pure under God's help. Ephesians 1.13 In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Look at what Paul tells the Corinthians about being sealed in the Spirit. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So just as a Jewish bride is determined sanctified or set apart waiting for her groom, the church is declared sanctified and set apart, waiting for Christ to return our bridegroom. First, 2 Corinthians 11. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to the one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. The wedding imagery is all throughout Scripture. During that time, the bride has to be ready. She and her bridesmaids have to be on the lookout. They've got to be ready to go. Matthew 25, 1, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and you, go to the dealers and buy it for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Private ceremony. Afterwards, the other virgins came, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said, Truly I say to you, I don't know you. Watch therefore, because you never know the day and hour. She doesn't know the day and hour. But she can see the progress of the building, and she can see the signs, and she knows he's coming soon. When everything is prepared, it's the Father who has to give his approval. Matthew 24, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. 1 Thessalonians 5.1, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
Matthew 24, 44. Therefore you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. And just as the Jewish bride was unaware of the exact time her groom would come for her, so the church is totally unaware of the exact time Jesus will return for us. But we know it's going to happen. It's an imminent event. It's sealed, guaranteed, and a day on our calendar. We just don't know exactly what day. That brings us to the rapture. The rapture will occur the moment the Father says everything's ready. Once Jesus has prepared a room for everyone, the commitment's been made, it's been sealed, it's promised, it's just a formality for the groom to go get his bride. Take her to the Father's house for the wedding ceremony and to consummate the wedding. We've been studying how in the blink of an eye, Jesus comes to the bride's location, earth, meets us in the clouds and takes us to the Father's house. Not my idea, God's. Note that Jesus himself is the one who comes to get his bride. Nobody sends a messenger to go get their bride. John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. And I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. I'm coming for you. I'll be back. I made the promise. Jesus says, you, you know the way to where I'm going. You see, the bride doesn't need to know how to get to the father's house. All she needs to know is to trust that her groom will get her there. He knows the way home. So Jesus tells them, all you need to know is that I'm coming to get you. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. I, I know where to go. I know how to do this. You see, I'm actually the way. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, a few things to note here. Only those who surrender to Jesus, those who are in Christ, are wed to him, have taken the covenant seal. In the Old Testament, there's references to Israel being the bride. But we learn from Jesus and others that they were unfaithful and broke that covenant. And as a result, Jesus comes to give a new covenant and will eventually offer the new covenant to all the Jewish people as well. We'll talk about that. The bride of Christ are New Testament believers who are raptured by Jesus to go to the Father's house. We will know and we're going to review in detail that Christ returns at the second coming with his bride, not his fiance. Thus, before the second coming, the wedding ceremony had to have been completed. Make sense? The bride of Christ must be given their resurrection body. They must be rewarded, judged, and clothed in their righteous deeds. The reason that the church is raptured, I believe, is to be wed in the Father's house. We arrive at the Father's house and we prepare ourselves. You may be going, how does that happen? You're making it sound like I'm going to have a what you are. You're going to have a wedding. The marriage ceremony takes place in heaven and involves the church. Since the church or bride is dressed in white linen... There must have been a moment where they were judged and declared righteous in God. This is the judgment of the just that we're going to talk about for a minute. 
not regarding salvation, but regarding the rewarding of crowns and rewards. 1 Corinthians 3.10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. This means that every one of us is going to stand before Jesus and look at what we've done. Not to determine our salvation, but to determine rewards and opportunities. This means that all the wood, the hay, and the stubble gets burned away, and the only thing that you take with you into your wedding is silver, gold, and precious stones that have been purified. Once we are raptured, our works will be evaluated. Our salvation is secure, but our works will be evaluated. That should be a sobering truth to believers who find other little g-gods to chase. Revelation 19.6 Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This corresponds to the ritual cleansing at the Jewish wedding ceremony. The bride is bathed and clothed in white linens that signify her purity. The first thing that will happen when we arrive at the Father's house is that we will be prepared for our wedding. This will occur at what is called the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat. Romans 14.10 Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? Remember, brothers talking about other believers. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. A lot of believers think, well, I'm saved, so I can do whatever I want. It's just going to be, no, you're going to sit in front of Jesus and he's going to share two things with you. The things you did with a pure heart that he's glorified and honored by, and he'll give you crowns and rewards for that. And then he's also going to show you the missed opportunities you had. The moments when what you were doing looked good, but actually you were serving yourself. Matthew 16, 27, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Revelation 22:12. Behold, I'm coming soon. Bring my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. Now we read that and we think, oh, he's just going to punish the bad. No, he's going to evaluate us. Are we living with a pure heart? Are we doing the things we could do? Not to punish us, but to show us the opportunities that we missed. 
and the things that we did really well and to sort out people who are just trying to look good and their hearts are off from believers who are serious about doing God's work. It should be a sobering wake-up call to believers to know this. The idea of the judgment seat goes back to the athletic games in Paul's day. After the games concluded, a dignitary took his seat on an elevated throne in the arena. One by one, the winning athletes would come up to receive a reward, usually a wreath of leaves or a victor's crown. In the case of Christians, each one of us will stand before Christ the judge and receive or lose rewards. I would also point out that there's different rewards for different behavior in heaven. But the Bible also says there's varying degrees of punishment in hell. What? Yeah. Based on what the unbeliever did while on earth. Thus, in contrast to the different rewards that believers obtain for works on earth, unbelievers will be punished um, for their works as well. Mark 12, 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive greater condemnation. Matthew eleven twenty three. 23, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. In the case of Christians, each one of us will stand before Christ, and be judged. It won't be in a corporate setting, won't be in a huge thing. It's going to be individual and personal, just like everything Jesus does. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. It has nothing to do with whether we're saved. Those who have placed faith in Christ are saved. Nothing threatens that. But believers are eternally secure in our salvation. The judgment has to do with the reception or loss of rewards. Remember Jesus said in the um, parable, you've been faithful in many things, come and take much in my father's home. It's more like an award ceremony for Christians. Since we aren't saved by our works, but rather by our faith, the judgment doesn't relate to salvation. It relates to how well we've lived out what God has given us. To whom much is given, much is expected. It, it evaluates the things that we do from a pure heart out of gratitude for the free gift of salvation. Second Corinthians 5. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for him, what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Now here's the thing, when we are judged, we're going to be given crowns. We'll talk about that in a minute. But when you think about carrying your rewards and crowns under the one who carried the crown of thorns, your rewards mean almost nothing. We see in Revelation that our elders can't, they, they cast their crowns down at the feet of Jesus because they're unworthy and it doesn't matter. He is so much above any reward we get that the crowns become our praise. Believers will be judged fairly, thoroughly, impartially, individually, and gracefully. 
but our works will be judged in a one-on-one session with Christ. The Christian's judgment will focus on his personal stewardships of gifts, talents, opportunities, and responsibilities given to him in this life. The very character of each Christian's life and service will be laid bare under the unerring and omniscient vision of Christ, who the scriptures tell us have eyes like the flames of fire. Your works are going to be tested in fire, not burned up, the fire of the eyes of Jesus. How well did you do with what I gave you? How obedient were you in living for me and not you? In keeping with this, Scripture often defines the rewards of Christians as the judgment as crowns that we wear. There are different crowns that are mentioned in Scripture. Let me just tell you a few. The crown of life is given to those who persevere under trial and especially to those who suffer to the point of death, martyrs. The crown of glory is given to those who faithfully and sacrificially ministry of God's word to the flock. The imperishable crown is given to the ones who, read, who win the race of temperance and self-control. The crown of righteousness is given to those who long for the second coming of Christ. So is the judgment seat of Christ intended as an encouragement or a warning? Probably both. It's a warning to those of us who surrender to Jesus and then fall into carnal living and think we're not going to be held accountable in some way. That we're not going to have to see the disappointment in Jesus' face when we decided to chase after the world instead of him, after we surrendered to him and drank of the covenant. It's possible that some Christians might be ashamed at the seat. Yeah. Such Christians will forfeit rewards that could have been theirs. It seems to be what John says in 2.8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what you've worked for, but may win a full reward. You see, people read that scripture, they think they're talking about salvation. They're not. Salvation's secure. He's talking about rewards in heaven, not salvation. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now, like me, when I went through this part of this writing it, I sat down and thought, wow, I need to change some things. I need to remember that I'm going to have everything I do weighed, every word, every action, every heart. So how can we be happy in eternity if we sort of fail at the judgment seat? Have you thought about that? Well, some are going to do really well at the judgment seat. Others are not. We're all saved. We all live eternally with Jesus, and that's enough. An analogy is that some high school students get better grades than others, but we all live to graduate, hopefully. And we can explore the world as we see. So what should our attitude be about the judgment seat? I am absolutely convinced that Jesus can't wait to reward you and me. He yearns to do it. It'll bring a smile to his face. That fact, in addition to the incredible salvation he's already offered us, should motivate us to serve him with joy and a sense of thrill for the future, not fear. We spoke last week about the rapture and why I believe that Scripture best supports a pre-tribulation rapture. I don't want to preach that again, but I do want to go back to a key point. The church is not mentioned during the description of tribulation in chapters 4 through 18 of Revelation. But in chapter 19, we see her and we learn about her. 
Revelation 19.6, we already read this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It is granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Notice the word supper. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Note that we haven't had one seal, one uh, trumpet, or one bowl poured out yet. And this scripture says the marriage of the land has come and the bride has made herself ready. Those are past tense. Okay? Both before the second coming of Christ and before the tribulation or before all the seals have been broken. It was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen, the righteous deeds of the saints. All of us are going to be clothed in fine linen our righteous deeds. She's been brought to the Father's house, prepared for the wedding, the judgment seat, determined to be worthy, and the marriage has come. She can't marry a pure husband if her purity hasn't been validated by the Father. Okay, so we are taken to heaven. We are then judged based on our deeds. We are then clothed in the righteousness of the deeds of the saints, we're then dressed in white and we're presented at the wedding. And in this scripture, it says the wedding has come. The bride, not the fiance, has made herself ready. She's beautifully adorned in bright, fine linen. Interesting that the groom and bride are together alone for seven days or one week of time after the wedding. They're in the room that the groom has prepared and they will live there from that point forward. At the end of the seven day period, they emerge and the call goes out for the wedding feast. Okay, now a lot of people miss this. Okay, when you read the scriptures, you've got to look at the difference between the wedding ceremony and the wedding feast or supper. Wedding ceremony, intimate, private, small, closest people. Seven days later, Wedding reception, supper, everyone is invited. Almost everyone. Though the marriage of the Lamb to his bride and the marriage supper of the Lamb are closely related, they're two separate things. In fact, these two events are usually held at two different locations. The marriage of the Lamb will be in heaven right before the second coming. Marriage supper of the Lamb will commence at the beginning of the millennium. I'll explain that in a minute. By comparing scripture to scripture and distinguishing things that differ, it's clear they're two separate events. So let's look at the timeline. We get raptured. Down there where it says rapture of the church. While the world is going through tribulation, seven years, a week of tribulation, we, what they call a week, we are going to be up in heaven getting prepared for our wedding. And at some point during that time, we're going to be married. We're going to be clothed in righteousness. We will have sat in the judgment seat. We will already have gone through that so that when Christ returns, we're coming back with him as his army of believers. Okay? Now, the wedding ceremony occurs sometime during the tribulation. Probably early because in the Jewish weddings it was the next day. Okay? Once the bride's prepared. But the call for everybody else to come join the supper 
is the second coming of Christ. Okay, remember the scriptures say, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper. We'll get to who those people are in a minute. Interesting that the time of tribulation is referred to as one week in Daniel. And at the end of the week of tribulation, Jesus returns to earth with his bride, not his fiance, to fight Satan in the second coming. As soon as the bride and bridegroom come back after seven days, it's time for the call to go out for the wedding reception. Revelation 19, 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That's us. At that point, the call goes out and all the wedding guests are invited. It's time for the reception. At the second coming, Jesus returns to the earth with his bride. The call goes out for everyone to join them for the wedding supper or the reception. All the Old Testament saints, all the tribulation saints who died or who died during the tribulation, they're the guests at the marriage supper of the Lamb that occurs right before we begin the Millennial Kingdom. The intimate wedding ceremony occurs during the tribulation in heaven after the rapture of the bride. You got that? Okay. Once the groom and bride return after seven days, the call goes out for everybody to join. What's that called? The second coming of Christ. All believers of all time. It's time to fill the heaven. It's time to get your resurrection bodies. It's time to come to the wedding supper. So the wedding ceremonies between the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the Bride of Christ, the raptured church, but the reception calls for everyone to come home and celebrate. The Old Testament saints will be in heaven. They'll have their rewards, but they're not the church. They're not the Bride of Christ. They're the friends of the bride and bridegroom who at this point can be seen as the invited guest to the feast. So all believing dead from Adam until the resurrection of Christ will be guests at this feast. In addition, those who have received the Savior during the tribulation, both Jews and Gentiles, some of whom have been martyred. So everyone comes to the wedding supper, the reception, all believers of all time, Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, church, everybody's there. It's the celebration, come one, come all. The call goes out, it's time for the wedding supper of the Lamb. The host is the Father, the bridegroom is Jesus, the bride is the church. The guests are the Old Testament and tribulation saints. Everyone has been called home. Everyone has been Purified, everyone is ready for the reception. And that completes the wedding of the Lamb. Jesus selected and paid the price for his bride, the church. We accepted his invitation to join him and unite with him in a covenant relationship forever. We mark that covenant through communion. Our drinking of the cup of communion symbolizes our acceptance of the covenant and proclaims the return of the Lord until the day he returns. Every time we take communion, we're saying, I'm in. I'm in. I'm ready for my wedding. I'm ready for that day. I'm committing myself to purity. I'm committing myself to surrendering again and again and again until he shows up. The Father accepted the price paid and we live on earth sealed in the promise of Jesus' return. When the Father determines the time is right, He's going to send the sun to the clouds to rapture his bride. 
All who believe in Christ will rise to meet him in the clouds and will be given our resurrection bodies. Jesus will lead us away from the earth to the Father's house to a place that he's prepared for us. In order for God to remain just and righteous, we, the bride, have to be judged, prepared, and clothed in the righteousness of God. Jesus could never marry an unclean or unrighteous bride. We're raptured, judged, cleansed, rewarded, and married. While we're in heaven preparing and celebrating our marriage with Christ, the world will be going through tribulation. The end of tribulation will emerge with Christ when he returns to earth to complete his judgment, to bind and defeat Satan, and to call all the Old Testament saints home. When he returns, all the Old Testament saints and martyred tribulation saints will be resurrected and given glorified bodies. Those who survive the tribulation as believers in Christ will enter the millennial kingdom in their human form and will replicate and populate the kingdom. We'll get into all that. Everyone at this point is home. Before the millennial starts, after the second coming of Christ, everybody's home. And everybody celebrates the marriage supper reception of the Lord, which will usher in the millennial kingdom. The seventh reason, in my opinion, that the rapture has to be before the tribulation is that we have a wedding to attend. You don't have to agree. It's okay. I'm just sharing with you why I believe we're going to be raptured at any moment. So the question is, how should we live? How should that change the way we live? How should it impact our hearts? Knowing the truth, how, how does that change us? Well, the reality of the rapture motivates those who are seeking to make a decision. He can come back at any moment. You don't have forever. You, you can drop dead or he can come back before we finish the conversation. There should be an urgency from us as believers to reach non-believers because we don't know when the time is up. We may very well look at people we love and tell them there's no oil in your lamp. There's no Holy Spirit in you, the oil. There's no oil in your lamp. You can try to go buy it, but you can't because the only place you can get it is in Christ. You can't buy your way into heaven. The reality of the rapture motivates believers to have a caring heart for the lost. They're lost. We know the way home. The reality of the rapture motivates us to be ready and in constant communication with God. To confess our sins. To have a cleansing influence on us. Why do we confess our sins? Because they'll be forgiven. What does forgiveness mean? Purity. Unrepentant sin keeps us from where we need to be. The reality of the rapture for believers who see the end approaching begins to have a calming effect on your heart. You know what's happening. You can see it. You're not panicked. You're not freaked out. You know what's coming. The reality of the rapture and being reunited with loved ones has a, has a comforting influence on grieving hearts. We could be raptured tonight and see everybody. All those people that we attended the funeral and said, when will we see them again? All those people, parents, grandparents, everybody, think about it. It comforts a grieving heart to know that there is a day on the calendar when we will all be together and we have no death because of Jesus, provided you believe and trust in him. The reality of the rapture focuses on the things of God and has a motivational influence on serving hearts. 
As the time gets near, I talk about it all the time, we need to be on our point as believers. We are what's holding back the Antichrist. We need to be serving. We need to be giving. We need to be in the places God calls us to be, fully devoted to what he's called us to do. This is not the time for us to go chase little g-gods. So let me ask you this. Have you thought about your wedding garment? Marriage of the Lamb. Every believer will be present at the wedding feast dressed in the finest white leather, which the Bible says represents the righteous deeds that we've done. Those deeds aren't so we can enter heaven. God's already invited us and made the way for that. But the wedding feast, the wedding garment, we're going to sew ourselves. I once heard a Bible teacher say, has it ever occurred to you that the marriage of the bride of the lamb, each of us will be wearing the wedding garment of our own making, our own deeds, our own actions. How we're dressed on that day depends on the life we live for Christ. Everybody's going to be in white linen. Everybody's going to be in dazzling white, but there's going to be righteous evaluation. So it should change the way we treat other believers. How we employ our God-given talents and abilities. How we use the money that God has entrusted to us. How well we endure personal injustice when we're being mistreated. How well we endure suffering and trials. How we spend our time. How we run the race God has given us. How effectively we control our fleshly appetites. How many souls we witness to for Christ. How much the rapture means to us and shapes our lives. How faithful we are to God's word and God's people. How hospitable we, are, hospitable we are to strangers. How faithful we are in our vocations. How we support others in ministry. How we use our words and how we live out our deeds. We should be aware of everything. Someday the bride will come to get you and me and take us to the Father's house. And I promise you, on that day, you want to see the smile of Jesus tell you that what you've done was with a pure heart and that he's proud. Come into my father's house. Well done, good and faithful servant. Knowing that we are Christ's bride changes the way we see ourselves and the value he has placed on us. It recognizes the price that was paid, the promise that was made, the rewards that are planned for us and the destination awaiting us. Now, every time we take communion, and we're going to take communion in just a minute, we're re-upping on the covenant. Every time we take communion, we tell God, yeah, I'm ready. I'm your bride. I'm drinking from the cup again. I'm re-evaluating. I'm, I'm more in now than I was the last time I did this. I'm more committed to purity than the last time I did this. God, there's something I need to confess before I do this because I need to come to you pure and you already know it. You see, every time we take communion, the word says to evaluate yourself, to look at yourself, to think about yourself. You and I are brides that are in a promised covenant. The price was paid. It was Jesus' blood. The promise is secure. There is a day on our future that is going to blow away this little bitty wedding Kate and uh, William had. So when we take communion, we proclaim his death until he comes, the scripture tells us. 
His bread is his body broken for us. The wine is his blood poured out for us. The covenant gets renewed every time we take communion. So in a minute, we're going to take communion after I pray. I want you to spend a little bit of time thinking about what it means to really drink from the cup. What it means to take the bread and dip it into the juice that represents his blood. What it means to get on your knees and tell Jesus, I'm here and I'm all in. I'm ready. I'm here to do what you want to do. Anything, anywhere, anytime, at any cost. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you used images that we could understand. That you used the covenant of marriage to show us how much you love us, how you're preparing for us, how you're doing everything for us. God, please don't leave it. let us leave here like we were when we walked in. I pray, God, that we are more committed to putting you first, to seeking first the kingdom of God. And one of the ways we do that, God, is we take communion. You tell us that when we get together, we should share and remember the price that was paid for our salvation, but also the covenant that we made with you. We long and look forward to the day that you call us to the clouds. But until such time, God, we celebrate communion and we proclaim your death until you come. Lord, we look forward to the day at the wedding supper of the Lamb when you will once again drink from the cup after everybody's come home. And we ask it all in Jesus' holy name.